What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. When you think of the great years in rock and roll history, 1964, 1967, and 1976 all spring to mind. But one of the most important was 25 years ago. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We're going to take a trip back to 1991 and then review the 17th studio album from Iggy Pop. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, Greg, we're going to review the 17th studio album by Iggy Pop. An overused phrase, the godfather of punk rock, but geez, those albums he made with the Stooges are as good as it gets. The raw power of that great band. And then a long solo career. Now, Iggy is saying this might be his farewell album, the last of that career. That's later on in the show, Jim, but now it's time to go back to 1991. Look into my listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that, sad to say, is Brian <laughs> Adams with Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Takes you back to Kevin Costner in tights with Robin Hood. Remember oh, the video? Oh, man. That was the number one single, Greg, of 1991. If you only look on paper at the Billboard charts and, and the sales numbers, number one single of the year, Brian Adams, does that tell the story of a year? You know, uh, film critics, Greg, have what's called the auteur theory, you know, where a great director like Alfred Hitchcock or Martin Scorsese, they have a particular style, and you can deal with 30, 40, 50-year chunks of film history by following those directors. I think rock critics have the significant year theory. 1964, British invasion. Right. Explosion of music that changes the world. 1967, summer of love, psychedelic eruption. 76 into 77, punk rock, Ramones in the U.S., the Sex Pistols in the U.K. And I think that there's, among a certain age of rock listener, a notion that nothing that historical, that sea-changing has happened in the modern era, nothing since the 70s, to which you and I respond, nonsense. You know, in 1991, we were both early in our careers as professional uh, rock critics. I don't think we saw it at the time. But as we're looking back 25 years later, we're saying, wow, look how much has changed in music since that period. But also look at the things that happened in that era that are still influencing music today. Whether, you know, it's the echoes of Ice Cube that you hear in Kendrick Lamar or, or bits of Hole and Nirvana that are living on in Bully. In this show, we're going to focus on that key year, 91, but the story isn't necessarily all on the pop charts. Tell us, what actually was selling in 1991? 
Well, it's extraordinary, Jim. This was the era of the blockbuster album, and we had some blockbusters. First and foremost, let us not forget Guns N' Roses put out not one, but two albums that year. Two illusions. Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2. both selling over 10 million copies each. We look back on that now and we go, how did that happen? We had Garth Brooks kicking off the whole country pop phenomenon that year, the Haddocks, Garth Brooks being first and foremost among them, selling 18 million copies of his debut album, Ropin' the Wind. Well, it's balls and blood, it's a dust and mud, it's a roar of a Sunday crowd. It's the wide and his knuckles, the gold and the buckle he'll win the next go round. It's boots and shafts, it's cowboy hats, it's spurs and let it go. It's the ropes and the reins and the joy and the pain, and they call the thing a rodeo. We had U2 with a landmark album for them. You and I both feel it's their best album. Octung Baby came out that year. R.E.M. with a really fine record out of time. We had Boys to Men with Cooley High Harmony kicking off the R&B vocal group era. We had Metallica making the album that a lot of people think they jumped the shark with. Yeah. They went from being thrash metal progenitors in the 80s to making the self-titled Black Album in 91. And then we had the debuts. Let's not forget Spin Doctors that year. Everybody was into the jam band scene at that. I remember being around a lot of young men and women at that time wearing a lot of patchouli (laughs) during that era. Pocket Full of Kryptonite was their soundtrack. So it was a big year for blockbuster albums. And when we're looking at where music is today and what kind of sounds influenced 2016, I think first and foremost, we have to look at the repercussions raised by that little band from Seattle, Nirvana, with the release of the Nevermind record. Uh, it's really important to consider what was on the charts at the time. We were talking about the rise of pop rap. We had the likes of Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer dominating the pop charts. We had the hair metal era, which was still in full flower, with bands like Motley Crue and Poison. That was what represented mainstream rock at well, the time. Well, and Michael Jackson, the black or white single, the bad album, was still huge. Sure, and, and, and there were actually articles being written by some of our peers at that time, Jim, that rock is dead. It's yeah. no longer going to be a commercial force. What was interesting about the Nirvana thing, a lot of people saw it as a beginning I really saw it as a culmination of what had been going on in the independent rock scene in the 80s and specifically in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest. This whole idea of quote-unquote grunge, a term coined by the founders of Sub Pop Records, Bruce Pavitt in particular, talking about the idea of the guitars and this distorted sound, this dirty sound that owed a lot to 60s and 70s garage rock, early heavy metal, some of the independent rock music that came up in the 80s. 
bringing that sound into a mainstream audience, a mainstream sound. You know, when I talked to Kurt Cobain back in the late 80s when he was just starting out with Nirvana, he basically said, you know, we're just a tribute band. We are owning up to the bands that influenced us, and some of them may not be cool. Heck, I liked Kiss when I was growing up. I liked Alice Cooper. I'm paying homage to some of them, as well as some of those cool underground bands of the 80s, combining the melody of those 70s mainstream bands with some of the dirtiness and the grunge, quote-unquote, of those 80s indie bands. Nirvana kind of was a culmination of that. On top of that, you had this extraordinary songwriter in Kurt Cobain who had a melodic sense and who had a gift for putting lyrics together in a unique way. The Bleach album, he told me, was basically just an angry kid ranting at the world. With Nevermind, he started writing poetry. That record was a culmination of two or three years of journal keeping and his outside reading. He was heavily into William Burroughs at the time, the whole cut-up technique of piecing together seemingly unrelated images. So with Nevermind, the band really put itself on the map, but it didn't know so at the time. It decided, you know, we're going to go into the studio with Butch Vig, based in Madison, Wisconsin, and make basically our second record. The label at the time for Nirvana, Geffen, said, hey, hey if we sell 50,000 copies, this thing's going to be a huge success. Yeah. There were no great expectations for this record. Nobody saw it coming. Anybody who says they did is full of it. You always tell that story about seeing the band at Metro just as it was about to explode in, in what would be called in a documentary film later on, the year punk broke. Yeah, I mean, here they were in front of a few hundred people at most, and they were the opening band. People were there to see the headliners, 11th Dream Day, a band that actually was on a major label at the time. Cobain and the band opens with a 40-minute set and just completely tear apart the songs and then tear themselves apart in the process. Cobain, I use this image a lot, but it just sticks in my mind, where he seemed to be in the jaws of an invisible giant Rottweiler who was just slinging him around the stage willy-nilly. And I go, this man seems possessed. Who are these guys? We need to yeah. we need to find out more about this band. They really laid the groundwork for what they would do later with that tour. And it was interesting to watch. The big transformation for me, Jim, with Nirvana was they'd gone through a series of drummers. When Dave Grohl finally was recruited as the drummer in that band, he'd been recruited from that Washington, D.C. hardcore outfit, Scream, that really was the final piece there. The power of that drummer, combined with Cobain's songwriting, gave that band an undeniable force that when people did see them live, it was like, wow. It almost made the record seem quaint by comparison. We are talking 1991, 
a watershed year in the history of rock and roll. Greg, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that no one who plays rock and roll at any point in the future is not going to owe some small debt to Nirvana. The same way you can say that every rock band post-64 owed something to the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. Overnight, Nirvana remakes the music industry in 1991. Michael Jackson is knocked off the charts. Nirvana is on the charts. MTV stops playing hair metal. And the floodgates open. The major labels descend en masse mm. on Seattle. Also Chicago and New York and, and, and Texas. They begin signing the weirdest bands. You know, the butthole surfers wind up on a major label. And the Jesus Lizard. Crazy stuff happens. But it's not only confined to the U.S., in the UK, a very similar movement was happening. You can call it the shoegaze movement, so named because a lot of the bands weren't very flamboyant on stage. They stood and they stared at their their feet. What it was was modern psychedelic rock. Peers of Cobain, same age, kids in their early 20s, influenced strongly by their parents' Beatles, Stones, psychedelic 60s record collections. It had started a few years earlier with the Jesus and Mary chain paving the way for these bands, but a whole class of them comes up. Slow Dive, wonderful, dreamy space pop. Blur, slightly more upbeat with their first album coming out in 91. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is just another one of those Manchester bands doing that vaguely trippy dance thing, but a band that would prove to have much greater depth to it. Ride is in between its first album and its second album in 1991. They're the band that everybody is putting its money on being able to break into the U.S. They did some great tours, didn't really happen. And then, of course, My Bloody Valentine. These bands have an influence that far outweighs their album sales. In the case of Nirvana, the album sales were significant. In the case of My Bloody Valentine, they were not. This was a group that was started by Kevin Shields. The early My Bloody Valentine records in the late 80s are not extraordinary. This is a band that's kind of goth-like yeah, yeah. and then picks up on the what the Jesus and Mary Chain are doing. They get a little more aggressive. But round about 89, 90, two things happen. Kevin Shields discovers a new way of playing guitar. It involves a Yamaha effects pedal, which has this wonderful backwards reverb setting, and it involves the surf guitar trick of the whammy bar mm-hmm. or the tremolo arm. He doesn't play it the way people would at the end of a chord to kind of drag out the sound. He keeps his little finger wrapped around it. On every downstroke, he learned to play guitar listening to the remote, so it's all downstrokes. He is moving with that tremolo bar going in and out of tune, putting the guitar sound through the backwards reverb. This was a sound he discovered, by the way, while taking entirely too much ecstasy, he now admits. (laughs) So it was the combination of this psychedelic drug and this psychedelic sound 
makes an album called Loveless, which, you know, if I had a dime for every musician who said, uh, you know, that remains to me the greatest rock album I've ever heard, Kevin Shields has never been able to make the follow-up album to Loveless. When I think of 1991, I think of how I still feel like I'm hungover, experiencing bed spins, no matter what time of the day it is or what condition I'm in. You listen to this album and you feel high. That's the magic of 1991 and the best album of 1991 as far as I'm concerned. Here's the opening track, Only Shallow, from Loveless by My Bloody Valentine on Sound Opinions. That was Only Shallow by My Bloody Valentine from the 1991 album Loveless on Sound Opinions. Greg and I will continue talking about this landmark year in rock history in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we'll review the new collaboration between punk legend Iggy Pop and Queens of the Stone Age leader Josh Homme. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we've been talking about one of the most significant years in rock and roll, 1991. I mean, 25 years later, we're still talking about the artists, albums, and events of that year as major influences on music and the music industry. Case in point, the beginning of Lollapalooza. Uh, Perry Farrell's brainchild as kind of a farewell tour to his uh, major band out of Los Angeles, Jane's Addiction. The band was breaking up. He said, let's take a few of our friends. Let's do this tour across 22 cities as kind of a farewell. I don't even think Perry Farrell could have envisioned what a franchise this was going to turn into. That tour that year included Jane's Addiction as the headliner, a Living Color and Susie and the Banshees opening up, some smaller level bands. The Rollins Band was opening. Then there was Ice-T as sort of a token rap act, kind of a radical move, a rock-intensive tour with a rap act on it. When I wrote about parties, someone always died. When I tried to write happy, yo, I knew I lied. Cause I live a life of crime. Why play a blind? A simple looking anyone with two cents would know I'm a hardcore player from the streets. Rapping about hardcore topics over hardcore drum beats. A little different than the average though. Jet you through the fast lane, drop you on death row. So Ice-T was there not only in his hip-hop guys, but also with his heavy metal band, Body Count. And then, of course, we had Nine Inch Nails. So an eclectic group of performers, nobody really knew how this was going to do. It ended up doing really well. It started selling out amphitheaters around the country and made a lot of money to the point where they said, hey, let's do this again. Within the next couple of years, it was making $20 million a year on the road at least. It created a genre of music, alternative rock. And there was an accompanying radio format that was spawned as a result of that. You know, Greg, in the underground world, the fanzine world, the indie rock world, there was a lot of cynicism and sarcasm about the modern rock radio format and this new genre, alternative rock. I was not so jaded. You know, when I went to Lollapalooza in 91, to me, it it was usually encouraging. It was as if all of the separate misfit tables in high school had suddenly gotten together and realized we have more in common than we have separating Mm -hmm. us. And the thing we have in common is is we can join together and all be freaky here in this safe space and the heck with all the bullies in the outside world. Suddenly we're coming together and and there was a cross-pollination that to me was really encouraging before the marketing and the merchandising set in. Well, the marketing and merchandising was absolutely there from the get-go. It's just that nobody realized it quite yet. I think the the initial year, there was sort of a magical quality to it, as you said. After this, you can remember, the 90s were dominated by these touring festivals, whereas now we're in the era of the Destination Festival, the one city everybody comes from around the world to that one place to see a big rock concert, whether it's Coachella uh, on the West Coast or Bonnaroo in Tennessee or Lollapalooza now, a Destination Festival in Chicago. 
Chicago. corporate festival now here in the center of Chicago, which has nothing to do with what Lollapalooza was in 91. Exactly. But the whole idea of this touring festival uh, dominated the 90s. We had the Horde Festival for the jam band scene. We had Lilith for the female singer-songwriter scene. We had Ozfest, of course, for the for the metal scene with uh, the godfather Ozzy Osbourne presiding over it. So there was a lot of money to be made. But let's look at the music for just a split second here because I think that was the important take out of this. Again, much like Nirvana and grunge, it was really not a beginning so much as a culmination of a music that had been underneath the mainstream radar for the better part of the decade, really since the punk era began. There was no outlet for that music. There was no radio play. There was no major touring circuit. For 15 years, bands were struggling to get an, an, an audience that was bigger than maybe a thousand people filling a major club or, around the country. And now here it was, an opportunity for the butthole surfers of all yeah. people to play in front of 25,000 people and get signed to a major label deal. Now, people may argue later on, is that such a good thing that bands like the Butthole Surfers and the Melvins and Urge Overkill were getting signed to major labels as a result of this? But there's no doubt it did create the notion that, hey, there was a big audience for this music. It's just that the mainstream means of gauging it weren't capable. I mean, the Billboard charts weren't really reflecting it. The radio airplay wasn't really reflecting it. Lollapalooza made the corporate big shots pay attention to this music, and it was a double-edged sword because initially it was a good idea, but I think five or six years later, Jim, I think the uh, the air sort of went out of the balloon when you saw the bands like Bush and Seven Mary Three and Candlebox, these sort of second-generation grunge or alternative bands dominating the charts. But it's interesting, Jim. I think the one band from this whole sort of alternative Lollapalooza Nation scene of the early 90s, the one band that had real longevity and is still going today is is Pearl Jam. Ten, the debut album by Pearl Jam, came out in 1991, but it really had its impact in 92. 92 is the year Pearl Jam is playing on Lollapalooza, the second year of Lollapalooza, and that album is exploding as they're touring the country. They're really like the R.E.M. or the U2 of the alternative era Mm -hmm. in terms of becoming an ongoing monolith. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and 25 years later, we're looking back at the music of 1991. Greg, I think for the most part, we've been focusing on the rock world, but we can't forget that rap was really the dominant sound in pop music at the time. And in particular, 91 was the year that gangster rap really broke into the mainstream. You know, we had had acts that were proto what would come to be called gangster rap, Greg, in the late 80s. You know, something like what KRS-One was doing with Boogie Down Productions before he became a real educator. He was There, there was a lot of violence on those early mm-hmm. records. But it was with this band from Compton, NWA, that gangster rap really became 
a huge commercial force. In fact, the one that would dominate hip-hop for the next two and a half decades. Mm -hmm. N.W.A. early on had a political consciousness, largely because of Ice Cube. When you're talking about Straight Outta Compton, you listen to that record, and the violence that exploded in the wake of the Rodney King verdict wouldn't have surprised anybody. You know, the tensions between the African-American community and, and the police in Los Angeles, that album is a classic for that. Straight Outta Compton is a crazy brother named Ice Cube from the stupid dope gang with an attitude. Ice Cube left. He went on to put out a great record in 91 himself. But N.W.A. without Ice Cube, led by Dr. Dre and Easy e to some extent, uh, who was going to Republican fundraisers at the time, mm-hmm. put out an album called Evil Forzagen. That wasn't the real title. The real title, you had to hold the CD cover up to the mirror and you got it. Well, well, let me just read you the lead I wrote the week that it came out. This is an album of hate-filled songs that glorify gang rape and beating women to death, an album so nihilistic that its lyrics brag about making money from these topics. I was physically ill listening to Evil Forsagen. The artistry that Ice Cube had brought, the energy was gone. These guys, obviously, this crew, there were some, some good rappers in there, and Dr. Dre had a certain sound. But... They were bragging about mistreating women. They were bragging about uh, dealing drugs. They were bragging about uh, being violent, often for no purpose whatsoever. And it was all about the money, and there was no moral core whatsoever, much less politics. The album drops as the bombs are dropping on Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And I remember that weird disconnect of Gulf War number 1 and, and this, this other album being on the top of the charts. That was the story. It debuted at number two and then shot to number one on the album charts in its second week. Nobody saw that coming. It was as big a shock as Nirvana had been. Why did that happen? Billboard had shifted to a new method of measuring album sales. Previously, retailers reported the figures that they sold. Mm -hmm. And some retailers might not have been all that honest. Mm. They might have said we were selling 50 copies of Guns N' Roses when really they moved 25. There was all sorts of speculation for years about that. Now with SoundScan, the actual barcode registering the sale measured the album sale, and we had real numbers. And what the success of NWA's album said was that this is not just a phenomenon in the black community, gangster rap, as Schoolie D or, or KRS-One had been. This is attacking, you know, the malls of, of America. This, this is white kids listening to this music and loving it. Well, there's no doubt that it was a hugely influential record. They were the most controversial 
group of the time, and that encouraged a lot of underage kids to want this record because, it, you know, there was dirty stuff on there, and I got to hear it. But there were a lot better gangster records in that era, and I think yeah. the big failing of N.W.A. was once Ice Cube left the fold, they really didn't have a storyteller. Ice Cube's solo record that year, Death Certificate, I think, was far superior to this record. Four, five brothers and a mother shit. Better known as a dukes and we all want to take a hit. From the back glass, got ten. Trying to get our hands on some dollars and cents. And fools can't hold us. Every chance we get, we're hitting up the road. Coming up short of the green guys. And I might start slinging bean pods Or the bootleg t-shirt of the month Which you can't touch just on the front I'm out to get rich Cause life ain't nothing but money I hate a snitch I think Ice-T's record that year, OG, Original Gangster, yeah. was far superior. Again, a superior lyricist. Well, and the album sales edged out a far more lucrative strain of hip-hop, where you had people like De La Soul and mm-hmm. the Beastie Boys of Paul's Boutique doing something much more creative, much more psychedelic, much more in line with the shoegazers, really, over in the U.K. Watching you, There was absolutely great hip-hop going on in 91, though, Jim. I think uh, not only in those bands that you just cited, but over in the U.K., we had the beginnings of the first true indigenous U.K. hip-hop. I'm talking about the first Massive Attack record, which came out that year, Blue Lines. This was a trio of DJ-slash-producers, mixers, who was funded in large part by Nana Cherry, who was a big hit maker in the U.K. at the time. Yeah. And she said, you know, you guys got to make a record. The record she ended up financing was called Blue Lines and a landmark record. One of the engineers on that record was a guy named Jeff Barrow, who went on to form the trip-hop band Portishead. This entire movement out of Bristol, England, began with Massive Attack. It led to landmark albums later on in the decade by Portishead and Tricky. And incredibly influential on people like Moby. His play record was very much influenced by what Massive Attack was doing a decade earlier. It all began with this uh, 91 record. And what they did was take the aesthetic of hip-hop, the sampling aesthetic, and combined it with elements of dub reggae and dance music and created a new sound. It was down-tempo, ethereal, uh, neo-psychedelic, very atmospheric, very much introspective, the kind of stuff you would tend to listen to more on headphones than out on a dance floor, although it could work equally well there because the bass lines were pretty big. But again, much more inward-looking music and beautifully evocative stuff on, on the Blue Lines record and creating an entire new movement of music that year with this one album that would go on to influence basically any kind of dance or hip-hop music that was released in the U.K. over the next two decades, as well as in the U.S. So the song I want to go out with that really says 1991 to me is Safe From Harm, from Massive Attack. Sharon Nelson on lead vocals, they were bringing in a lot of guest vocalists on these records, and they were also reaching outside the normal funk and R&B sampling sources to reach out to jazz records, for example. On this record, you're going to hear samples of Billy Cobham and John McLaughlin. So it's Massive Attack with Safe From Harm from the Blue Lines album on Sound Opinions. Show. 
That was Safe From Harm by Massive Attack off 1991's Blue Lines, my favorite track from a landmark year of music. But first, what's your favorite album from 1991? Why does that year continue to stand out? Call and leave us a message at 888-859-1800. Coming up next, what happens when Iggy meets Hami? That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called Gardenia from the new Iggy Pop record, Post-Pop Depression. Jim, you gave a very eloquent testimonial at the very top of the show about Iggy Pop's place in uh, rock history. I mean, those first three Stooges records, oh. landmark recordings, hugely influential on punk and post-punk. Uh, those solo recordings that he did with... David Bowie in 1977, The Idiot and Lust for Life, the beginning of Bowie's Berlin period. Uh, he was <laughs> working on his own recordings at the same time as well. And with Eno. Correct. But also resurrecting Iggy's career as a solo artist, and he's carried on ever since. In recent years, Iggy Pop reunited the Stooges and toured the world with them to the biggest audiences of the band's career. It's like, you know, 30, 40 years later, they're getting the recognition they deserved in the first place when they were widely misunderstood. Post-Pop Depression is the 17th studio album from Iggy Pop. It features contributions from uh, Queens of the Stone Age's Dean Fertitta and Arctic Monkeys drummer Matt Helders. But the key component here, the key collaborator, is Josh Homme of Queens of the Stone Age. Iggy reached out to Homme a couple of years ago, said, hey, I'd like to work with you sometime. Homme was flattered, heard the kind of songs that Pop wanted to write, was intrigued, thought, hey, let's pick up where Bowie left off in 77 with those two Berlin-era records that I was talking about, Lust for Life and The Idiot. And that's what they did. Here's a track from post-pop depression. It's called Sunday from Iggy Pop on Sound Opinions.
That was Sunday by Iggy Pop from Post Pop Depression, his 17th studio album. He's saying it may be his last. Greg, I'm going to say something that I know is going to tick you off. Now, we are both huge Iggy fans. He's one of the great white whales. We've never had him as a guest on Sound Opinions. We'd love to. I think Iggy Pop's solo career is a disaster for the most part. Three perfect albums with the Stooges, right? And then including those two Bowie records, two in one year, 77, The Idiot and Lust for Life. Now, there are moments of brilliance. The song Lust for Life, The Passenger, the occasional song like Candy. But there is far more Iggy shtick. Iggy on his own, minus the menace, the massiveness sonically of the Stooges, I don't think has ever had much to say lyrically when you're insulting Iggy Pop for being a bad lyricist, you know, you're taking a risk, right? I mean, No Fun by the Stooges is not profound. No fun, my babe, no fun, right? I mean, that's the lyric, right? It sounds profound, though, with the setting of that music in a way that a song like Sunday or Iggy going on telling us how he wants to tell Gardenia what to do tonight or something like Chocolate Drops or German Days... You know, it's almost insulting, right? James Osterberg is a very, very smart man, sophisticated man, a poet, an intellectual, a reader. He has always played this rock and roll idiot savant on stage in many ways. The wild man, right? He's still dangerous and exciting. But his solo albums, man, I would be hard-pressed in 17 years of recordings to find 10 good solo songs. And this record... Despite Josh Homme clearly loving Iggy and giving him some fire or attempting to, this is a trash it record. I think you're dead wrong about this record. I knew you would. I don't don't disagree with his 80s output. Yeah, I I didn't like those records either. I'm a huge Iggy Pop fan. But there are moments on the solo records in the 90s and beyond that have greatness on them, and I think this is the best work he's done as a solo artist probably since that Berlin period. I I think Homme gets it. He understands Iggy in a way that provides a setting for him to do what he does best. I disagree with you about him as a lyricist. I think he's he's almost one of those guys who who comes across as more of a idiot savant and there is I think he plays into that quality a little bit, but there's also poetry within that. And I think some of these songs are both funny and dark and profound in in ways that very few artists get to. I'm eager to hear what you think was poetic on this record. That Paraguay uh, song that ends the record is basically him waving goodbye to everything. And, And the way he sort of goes from this sort of despairing, sad mood at the start, like, oh, it's, it's, it's going to be a meditative track about me walking into the sunset, and then just ends up raging at everything by the end. It is really brilliant in its own way. The musical setting here allows him to actually sing. I think Iggy Pop is an underrated vocalist. That's one thing that Bowie really appreciated about Iggy and was trying to bring out in those recordings. He is not just the wild animal on stage coming out of the cage, which was very exciting to see, but he had nuance and substance as a vocalist. And I think we're hearing some of that here, even on some of the slower songs. I actually like this record quite a bit. I didn't expect to like it nearly as much as I do, but I think it's the best Iggy work in in decades. And if this is his final album, I say, what a way to go out. I say, buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
Come on. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island. The weather's starting to warm up here in Chicago, Jim. I think it's a perfect time to get out to that desert island and uh, play a track you cannot live without. What's it going to be? Well, you and me, Greg, we're gearing up to go somewhere even better than a desert island as we record this show. We're going to Texas for South by Southwest for our 25th, 26th visit. Mm -hmm. I was talking to the guys in my band the other day, and they were saying, what are you excited about this year? And, of course, I'm always excited about seeing the next Les Butcherettes or the next Savages, right? But what did I say? I said the meat. Now, you, as Sound Opinions Dining goes, you are sort of the salmon and salad guy. And I, I'm an unrepentant, uh, unapologetic meatitarian. Though we live in the town known as the hog butcher to the world, I'd say Austin is even better meat-wise. So I was thinking about meat, right? And they really thought that was funny when I said that. And Tony, my buddy, says, the song of your life, Jim, is Reverend Horton Heat's eat steak. And it absolutely is. And I was like, wow, how can it be that we've done this show for so long and I've never played Reverend Horton Heat? You got to go way back. You know, I think after the cramps, Horton Heat, aka Jim Heath, is the king of psychobilly. He's been churning this stuff out from Dallas, Texas uh, forever now. You know, since 1985, the first album was on Sub Pop in 1990. Man, Horton Heat is like an institution at this point, at least among those of us who love this churning wacko take on on rockabilly smoke em if you got em was the album allegedly recorded uh twice you know the first time they do it traditionally different tracks and stuff that that's not right for reverend horton heat they do it again in one room with a couple of mics the bare minimum and i think you hear that rawness that raggediness that knowing wink and nod in this song this is a so this is like the song of all time about going to texas and eating steak for six days while you're at uh, uh south by southwest it, it may be steak for five days and ribs on the sixth okay eat steak eat steak eat a big old steer eat steak eat steak do we have one dear it's making me happy reverend horton heat on sound opinions eat steak eat steak eat a big old steer eat steak eat steak do we have one dear beep 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 it's a mighty good food it's a great aim Cowpokes will come from a near and far when you throw a few ribeyes on the farm. Roberta Duran ain't two before a five cause it gives a mighty man an awful lot of mighty mind. Eat steak, eat steak, eat a big old steer. Eat steak, eat steak, do we have one deer? Eat beef, eat beef, it's a mighty good food. It's a great aid meal when I'm in the mood. Eat meat, eat meat, filet mignon. Eat meat, eat meat, eat it all day long. Hot off the grill. Eat steak, eat steak, eat a big old steer. Eat steak, eat steak. Do we have one deer? Eat beef, eat beef. It's a mighty good food. It's a great AB when I'm in the mood. Eat a cow, eat a cow, cause it's good for you. Eat a cow, eat a cow. It's a thing that goes. Look at all the 
cows in the slaughterhouse. Yard gotta hit him in the head, gotta hit him real hard. First he gotta clean it, then the butcher cuts it up, throws it on a scale, throws an eyeball in a cup. Saw a big frame steer standing right over there. So I wrestled up a fire, but the medium rare. Barbecued his brisket, roasted his rump, fed my dogs with the frame steer's hump. Eat steak, eat steak, eat a big old steer. Eat steak, eat steak, do we have one deer? Eat beef, eat beef, it's a mighty good food. It's a great A meal when I'm in the Reverend Horton Heat. Eat steak. Words of great <laughs> love and profundity. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Oh, Jim, we are going to be returning from Austin, Texas in the South by Southwest Music Conference with a complete report on some of the best up-and-coming bands. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions was produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Operator, operator, I'm so glad that you rang my phone. New messages. Hi, this is Kevin from Des Plaines, Illinois. Just listening to you talk about Who Knows Where the Time Goes by Sandy Denny. It blew my mind that you picked that song. That is one of my favorite songs of all time. I was getting home late one night and turned on the TV. There wasn't a light on in the house, and the dancer upstairs was on, and Nina Simone's version of that song was in that movie. And it was just magical in a completely dark room with these ballet dancers dancing to that song. So I believe that the Nina Simone version is the best version, but of course the Sandy Denny version is fantastic as well. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that song with uh, your listeners. Thank you. But I will still be here. I have no thought to leave. Who knows where the time goes? Who knows where the time goes? Hi, I'm calling with my favorite song about time which is Simon and Garfunkel's A Hazy Shade of Winter, and I can't believe that Paul Simon wrote that when he was a little baby. My name is Marcy. I'm from Oakland. Thank you. Bye. Look around. These are brown. And the sky is a hazy shade of winter. Give us salvation on the Hey, this is Drew Kelly from La Grand Oregon, and that Bonnie Ray album we were just playing when she was really upbeat, but still that kind of husky smoker voice. You guys didn't mention Lucinda Williams. That's exactly who she sounds like. And 
frankly, Lucinda always takes the cake when it comes to those heartbroken, but upbeat, husky, really dream girl type voices. Howdy, this is Ron from Western Mass, calling about episode 536. You guys turned me on to a very odd sister group called Teen with your review of their Love Yes album. How do I describe these women? The best I've got is if Jane Sibbery and the Roaches teamed up in the 80s to become a Prince protege band. What do you think? Is that close? You know, there's something not quite ready for prime time about their songs. Perhaps it's the arrangements. You know, I can't quite put my finger on it, but God, they really intrigue me. Um, I'm getting this album, and I'm keeping my eye open for them. I live in a college town, and my hope is that they will pass through on their way to Boston or Montreal. Anyway, thanks, guys. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.